And tonight, a very special conversation with a man that I much uh, respect, assuming I've got him properly on the line. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson, good evening. Good evening. Um, those uh, who are listening may wonder why I speak of the line, since it sounds as if Victor Hansen is in the studio. We're on one of those ISDN lines, which gives you that effect. But he is, in fact, talking to us from near his home in Fresno, California. Victor, um, I'm one of those many who became who have become quite reliant upon you since September 11th for your fine uh, analytic commentary on American foreign policy and its transformation into a necessary military operation since September 11. I read your contributions in National Review and in, um, um, among other magazines, Commentary and, of course, The Weekly Standard, and I've read a few of your books. But the, uh, what many will wonder after I quickly read the title of uh, your books, The Soul of Battle, uh, the Other Greeks, The Western Way of War, uh, An Autumn of War, War Like No Other. Those are all titles of books you've done over recent years. Uh, what many will wonder is how does a guy like that, with an interest in military strategy and war, which he comes by legitimately from a study of classical uh, Greek literature, particularly Thucydides, and yet others who write about uh, the et eternalities in uh, military life and military operations, how does he come to the question of what's happening to California? Well, it was accidentally, in some ways, I was asked by Peter Collier to write a memoir of someone who looked at this issue of illegal immigration and the current status of California from a variety of different viewpoints. One of them, of course, is I'm a professor at California State University, Fresno, which has about a 70% en um, enrollment of minorities and a large group of people who are from Mexico, both illegally and legally, and then I am a fifth-generation farmer who lives in a community that's a predominantly Mexican and Mexican-American. Uh, I have a family with a, one brother married to someone of Mexican heritage, another I have two stepchildren, uh, step-nephews and nieces, excuse me, and both my daughters are currently have Mexican-American boyfriends. So there was a variety of ways. Then I'm also a historian of civilization and culture, so I try to look at this you know, longer view of the longer duration. As one does that, uh, taking the longer view, indeed the historical view, of culture itself and of civilizations, one thing that's very evident, uh, and indeed it was one of the ancient Greeks who told us this was a Democritus, all is flux, nothing holds still, yes. everything changes. Pantherea, Heraclitus, everything changes the moment uh, we think it's stat static, it's not. And we, we're often um, not aware of the changes that are going on each second. So that's absolutely correct. And, uh, I'm somewhat older than you, and you're in solid middle age, and uh, I sometimes think that I'm an ambassador from another time. I well, do too, <laughs> actually, myself. Uh, I'm, 40, I'm 50 years old tomorrow, and mm -hmm. I feel that the world that I grew up in in some ways no longer exists, especially here in California. You make that very vividly clear by mixing uh, in your book, Mexifornia, A State of Becoming, mixing analysis and recent history with personal reminiscence. And you've already made mention of uh, the um, close contact you've had with people of Mexican origin over your whole life. As you described the school you went to, apparently you were in the minority, and it was a very small minority. Very, very small. It was a country primary school. It's still there. It's a mile and a half away from where I'm currently living. I'm living in the same house that my great-great-grandmother built. And what's striking is that when I was there, it was about 70 to 80 percent 
Mexican-American, and today it's about 99.9% Mexican or immigrant, uh, Mexican-American are in fact perhaps illegal alien, and the, the recent scores just announced that only 9% of the student body met the minimum state requirements in reading and, and mathematics. So something's radically happened in that school, which once used to graduate people who were Mexican-American who are now very successful people in their 40s and 50s. Well, there's been a large wave of immigration uh, since, even since you were a student in a primary school. And they've come uh, more and more from what might be called the Mexican underclass, a large Indian and mestizo population, in fact, has come across the borders uh, as much illegally as legally. And now they populate not only California in increasing number, but um, much of the Southwest. Uh, couldn't one say, well, yes, the melting pot hasn't yet fully plugged in. Now they're here, they're going to school, everything will get better, they'll get more literate, they will develop aspirations to uh, learn the language well and to succeed in the larger America. Uh, just as uh, I developed those aspirations and my parents held them when they came as immigrants from Eastern Europe to New York City. I think there's something to that, and people have argued that it mimics the Italian experience. In places like Virginia and Michigan and Wisconsin where somebody crosses the border and then they're surrounded by people of a different culture and the process of osmosis works from the host to the guest. But here in California, when you have four million people who have come from Mexico the last five or six years, we're starting to see apartheid communities where we don't have 50 or 60 percent of one group, but 90 percent. And in reaction to that, the second difference with the 19th century immigrant experience is that we are the host have lost confidence in the process or even the desirability of assimilation. So we're starting to experiment with legislation and protocols that we would never dreamed of uh, with your parents or grandparents. Of the course. Driver's license for people here illegally, separate graduation ceremonies based on race, national lobbying groups called La Raza, which means the race. Um, that's a force multiplying effect when you have a racial chauvinism and a bilingual education and government documents translated. Uh, when you add that to the fact that people are here illegally, unlike your immigrant parents and grandparents, so that they can be exploited by the employer, they can't participate in the civic life of the state. And then finally, too many people benefit if we would go around the table and see how this system, this uh, tragedy developed. You see the Mexican government that did not want one or two million people per year uh, marching on Mexico City for a redress of grievances, but would want to export uh, human capital, 10, million, 10 billion excuse me, in remittances per year. Uh, we have aristocratic lifestyle in California. Where all, all of that is backed by a change in ideation. Richard Weaver had it right when he titled his book so many years ago, Ideas Have Consequences. A new set of ideas came along. They have to do with cultural diversity. They have to do with multiculturalism. They have to do with redressing grievance by legislation and by political preferment. Uh, they have to do essentially with the ideology of the, Amer of the dominant uh, left end of the American left. Yeah, I think so. I think the idea was that where it was before, we were going to have an, an equality of opportunity. Somehow in California especially, we embraced this idea of equality of results, that we were going to make everybody equal if we just had enough money or state coercion. It's not California alone, is it? Isn't California um, essentially the same situation that uh, Leslie Fiedler said the Jews were in? The Jews are like everybody else, except more so. Isn't yeah, California like this country, except more so? Oh, absolutely. We're always, we always go one, one degree beyond the norm first and then other people follow us. So 
if we have licenses for people to drive who are here illegally or we give tuition discounts for people here illegally and in preference to people legally from other states or if we have separate mm -hmm. racial graduations obviously that may follow or it already has elsewhere let's look at Mexifornia a little bit more closely and uh, get some of the significant facts out before us uh, how many uh, people of classified as of some kind of Mexican origin, all the way from recent immigrants who came across uh, illegally to those who've got one or two Mexican uh, uh, grandparents. How many Mexicans, in quotes, are there in California? Well, that's a good question. Probably the statistics suggest perhaps 40% of the state, somewhere around 15 million, but that's a problematic figure because even the chauvinist of the of the Mexican-American radical fringe has a problem because most people intermarry after one or two generations, mm -hmm. and they need the racial configurations of the old Confederacy to sort everybody out as possible constituents. But we do have a lot of people, perhaps four to six million people who have been here in just the last ten years, both legally and illegally. But what do we know about the, uh, the illegal to legal ratio? It's probably about 50-50. Legal in the sense that they have resident green cards, but we're probably having four million, maybe perhaps five million. The United States itself perhaps has net nine to eleven. The more worried claim it's much higher, eighteen to nineteen. But I think the U.S. Census suggests it's about eight to eleven million people who are here illegally. And those illegals come over what is called the porous border. Why is it so porous? Well, it wasn't before in the 50s. I mean, the border itself hasn't changed to the visible eye, but the conditions here in the United States have radically changed. Employers feel no legal or social stigma about hiring people they know or here illegally. They don't feel that they're, they don't really care if they're hurting domestic laborers who have a perennial competition um, against very audacious and hardworking people from Mexico who can't redress or cannot organize. Uh, people who are in California in the middle class feel nothing. They have a sort of, as I said, an aristocratic lifestyle where we have people cut our lawns, uh, watch our grandparents, watch our children, clean our homes that only the 18th century French aristocrats used to dream of. Do I remember correctly from uh, something in your book that your own wife is the daughter of people who came from the Dust Bowl, in the Dust Bowl migration. Absolutely. Her whole family came, they were part of the Steinbeck migration. In the so 1930s. Many from ba to Bakersfield, California. And they were lured to California, essentially, if we could believe Steinbeck at all, uh, so as to provide cheap agricultural labor. They were. That, and they had the same, the only difference that I can see from the current migrations, of course, they were U.S. citizens and they came here yeah. legally and they spoke English. But you say that uh, Mexicans coming over the border are being lured for essentially the same reason? I think so. I think that I don't really believe that the allure of the far left that they're retaking or the, re the reconquest of California is on anybody's mind. It's just simply that if you're in Oaxaca and you make $10 a week and you can hear you can make $10 an hour in Fresno, you're going to try to get your family across. As but large as agricult uh, cor uh, corporate agriculturalists and yet others who are in manufacturing are involved in, uh, in getting the invitation out and in urging the uh, Immigration and Naturalization Service to kind of turn the blind eye at the border, one, one assumes. Yeah, they are, and it's even more insidious than that because it's not just ca uh, meat packing plants or cotton farms or grape farms. It's hotels, restaurants, mm -hmm. construction. And the idea is that people have learned in the short term that a young man, 18, from Oaxaca, 
can come to California and work much harder than our teenagers or t kids in yeah. their 20s for $10 an hour. Here in Chicago, uh, and I've been here for rather a long time, over 30 years now, um, I've noticed a very clear change in the demography of employment, so to speak. Um, if you go to restaurants, if you go to hotels, uh, the work that was once done by mixed groups but with a lot of uh, African-American representation in the uh, at the level of getting the day's work done, whether busboys or waiters or people um, uh, washing cars or what have you. Uh, there were a lot of American blacks represented in those ranks. You hardly ever see them doing that kind of work anymore. Now, that probably speaks well for them. Maybe many of them have indeed, with some education and some uh, uh, sensible assistance, have been able to move somewhat upward in the class system. We see nothing but Hispanics now in Chicago in the jobs of the, in the categories that I've just described. Well, I think part of it is also that people who are from Mexico who have lived in dire poverty for at least a generation, they have a window of 10 or 20 years where they're willing to live four or five people to a room, mm -hmm. work very hard, uh, be illegal, live in the shadows in a way that people of all different races of the lower classes won't in America. It's simply, But I think that's a fool's paradise or devil's bargain, I should say, because we should remember there's a, there's a lifestyle of the person who comes from Mexico, a life cycle. And a person who comes from Mohawk at 18 and lays cement for 30 years may feel that $10 an hour in cash is a great deal for the first four or five. But people marry, people have children, people throw their back out, people throw their knees out, they age, things happen in life, and pretty soon they understand that they get addicted to an American lifestyle, they see that $10 an hour is not uh, going to make it to cover their expenses, it's no longer an entry, rite of passage job, but a perennial drudge, and what happens is uh, the state then has to make up, uh, make up the difference. And what is the cost to the state? There are those who say that the great budgetary crisis, the great deficit crisis in California owes a good deal to the presence of that large population of illegals from Mexico uh, who essentially are taken care of by the state. That's the problem that we dare not speak its name because uh, it's such a uh, polluted topic where charges of racism fly. But I think most disinterested people, whatever your political views are, would say that a person who comes illegally from Mexico over a 30-year period will probably need to draw five times as much entitlement money, whether that's disability, mm -hmm. work, workers' comp, Section 8 housing, uh, school lunch program. Medical health, care as well. Medical care as he will contribute in taxes. And that has to be, we have an enormous, as you know, entitlement industry in California. You say that's the problem that dare not speak its name. It's not being discussed at all in the current political campaign? It's just starting to, but it would never have been discussed had it not been for the recall election. Yeah. But if you add a recall election and a $38 billion deficit in a state that has extreme natural wealth, whether it's Los Angeles or um, Port of Los Angeles or the Port of Oakland or Yosemite or Disneyland or Silicon Valley or the greatest agricultural sector in the United States, defense, wonderful weather, and then you add the highest... Uh, sales taxes and almost the highest income taxes and people have concluded that something radically is wrong. That leads me, as we pause in a moment for some commercials, uh, leads by an easy uh, and not free but systematic uh, path of association to one of the major candidates in the coming gubernatorial recall and if, uh, if he is recalled then on to the 
choice of a new governor, namely the candidate Cruz Bustamante, currently yes. the lieutenant governor of the state of California, and still a member, and he will not disavow that membership, of the Meca movement, which yes. in turn is closely linked to La Raza Unida party. Yes. We need to talk about all of that, and I propose that we do so right after this. And we return to Victor Davis Hanson, professor of classics at California State University at Fresno, who is in Fresno in a radio studio at the moment, and he is the author of a number of very important works. Uh, the newest in hand is Mexifornia, a state of becoming. That's what California may well be becoming. Indeed, there are those, but that book, by the way, is published by Encounter Books. Uh, a mutual friend of ours, Peter Collier, is the founder and uh, the man who runs that fine and very significant publishing firm. And uh, speaking of California's future, is it really the case that there are many in the leadership of um, the Mexican movement, the Chicano movement in California, and for that matter elsewhere in the country, who um, believe something like the following. I want to read to you from um, something I have found on the Internet. Um, this is about the organization uh, Mecha, which stands, that's M-E-C, small h, large a, and that stands for the uh, Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Aztlan. Let me read you a paragraph. Tell me whether you agree with this representation of what Mecha stands for. Quote, Mecha advocates the independence of the American Southwest from the United States by armed struggle if necessary and by political subversion if possible. It is a race-based group. Uh, one slogan is for those outside the race, nothing. Uh, it's a race-based group that advocates that the land belongs to the Hispanics, not the, quote, foreign Europeans. It specifically rejects cultural assimilation with the rest of the U.S. by Hispanic immigrants. It has links to armed revolutionary groups in Mexico. It requires lockstep obedience and philosophical political conformity, and it uses the political rhetoric of Marxism. Is that an accurate uh, characterization of Mecha? That's how their leaders would characterize them. But the, the, what, the debate here in California is that you would actually read that. So we have a lot of people who came out of that movement who were in Chicano studies departments, the media, government, who really don't want to discuss that aspect of it because they see it as more of a civil rights group. And they're angry at the messengers who are disseminating the real truth about what, how this movement started. So you say, that, you say that paragraph does represent the real truth about their intentions and their ideology. Well, it comes right out of their own... Um, bylaws and protocols. Now, Cruz, their webpage, it says a bronze state for a bronze people. But Cruz Bustamante, who is running for the governorship and is now the lieutenant governor, is supposedly was a, a leader of Mecha, and he supposedly refuses to renounce it and or its ideology. I don't quite understand how he could uh, aspire to be the governor of California while at the same time uh, intending that California become uh, the crucial province of a new nation called Aztlan, whatever that's supposed to mean. Well, there's a lot of sophistry involved, and he ultimately will have to confront the, the dilemma that you just posed. But the problem he has is that a lot of middle-class, successful, assimilated Mexican-American people were involved in that organization and were not in its extreme fringes. But the problem is sort of like the Trent Lott. Everybody was willing to give Trent Lott a pass on his University of Mississippi days, but they were not willing to give him a pass on a recent comment. Well, Cruz Bustamante, were, people are going to say, well, he was a young kid at Fresno State. He got into a radical group. 
But what they're not giving him a pass is, okay, now you're a mature leader who represents the entire state. Please repudiate the official literature of Mecha. And uh, he won't do that because to do that will alienate a lot of his uh, grassroots uh, supporters. Well, how widespread uh, at the grassroots level is that sentiment? The aspiration to indeed secede from the United States, take over, and make this either a separate Mexican nation or reunite it with Mexico. I think it's very few very few people actually but i think the people who do feel that are inordinately represented represented in the professions in the sense of act mostly in the academic world campuses chicano studies la raza mm -hmm. political activists and uh, most people in between don't really think about it although there's a lot of people here who come from mexico and have not done the hard work to learn english to assimilate to become legal and this sort of abstract, intellectual, academic uh, mantra filters down to them in a sort of natural nativism or pride. And it filters down in institutional arrangements, as, for example, uh, uh, the insistence on bilingual education, doesn't it? It does. And where I teach, we have a, a ceremony, which I just went to a graduation in May, where it's predicated on race. We have a separate graduation ceremony for people who call themselves Chicanos. And we have this odious term, La Raza, and that's a funny term. It means, I mean, Latin erotics, it means the race. We would never, in the American political experience, allow a group to say they're the Volk, which has mm -hmm. terrible connotations of a racially pure group in the same way the Raza. It was actually a term, as I, uh, as I have investigated it, that was first used by Franco in the fascist movement to sort of create a worldwide Hispanic uh, mentality. So I don't know what the Raza may be on the left, but they, they're using the nomenclature and the mentality that comes from the fascist right of the 30s. But the major significance of this is that the process of assimilation, which doesn't mean you throw away all of the identity of your parents, but it means that somehow you get, quote, Americanized. It's an old word, yes. but it's a, us it's a usable and significant word, that the process of Americanization is hampered or is blocked for, these, for many of these people. It is, and it's a tragedy because the old system that I grew up with was basically as, as we all as Americans know it. People came from Mexico, for example. They learned English. They were here legally. They participated in the civic life of their community. They were very proud of food, music, fashion from Mexico, literature, but they never would tamper with the core values. They were a multiracial society with one culture. Along uh, came because of the vast numbers who came increasingly in the 80s and 70s, 1970s and 80s, contrasted with the liberal political movement. There, that multiracial melting pot idea was questioned into something that gave rise to demagogues to creating a real multicultural society where English was no more, no less better than Spanish, that people could identify themselves through tribalism and racialism and not participate. There was a new myth about California that rather than simply having under 10,000 residents of any race, Indian, Mestizo, or Spanish, or Mexican, when Americans arrived, suddenly there was this nation of Atslan that had millions of, of Mexicans and we stole it from them. Complete fabrication. They created this uh, myth, the borders crossed us, we didn't cross the borders, even though that 90% of all Californians of all different races, mm -hmm. grandparents, were not born in California. You suggest in the book that many different uh, groups are responsible for cynical manipulation of, of this situation. Uh, left radicals, uh, some uh, conservative corporate types who just want cheap labor and don't think about the long-range problems they are thereby generating. But you suggest yet another uh, 
empowered group that is complicit in this process, which ultimately is very injurious to those Mexican immigrants, is the government and thus the ruling politicians of Mexico. I think it is. It's very cynical. I talked, I had a debate in Washington two weeks ago with a consul um, from Mexico. And uh, look, there's, if you were a Mexican government official, you would just love this system because you get three immediate um, benefits from it. One, you have a perennial so-called safety valve where if you can't provide goods and services in a very wealthy state like Mexico, and because of corruption and government failure, you export your problems so they don't march on Mexico City. You get 10 to $12 billion in cash, which is bigger than the entire tourism industry in Mexico today through remittances from California, Arizona, New Mexican workers. And then third, it's very insidious. There's an ideology that the farther you get from Oaxaca or Chiapas and the drudgery and poverty and racism of Mexico, you begin to romanticize Mexico and you become an expatriate advocate for a government under no circumstances you would ever want to live under. And so you might root for the Mexican team over the American team in a soccer match. So the Mexican government sees all this, and now they try to promote it with open borders and even not only allowing Mexican citizens to vote in elections. In my hometown, Mexican candidates ca uh, campaign for office in Mexico by appealing to voters in, in where I live. But also there's discussing things now that people of Mexican heritage in the United States should vote. And if you would distill all that, they really do believe that somewhere 100 miles south of the Mexican border and 200 miles north, there's a new hybrid civilization. Privately, and I say this privately, they would say privately they hope it looks like San Diego and not Tijuana. Hmm. But at least publicly, they think they've created this new hybrid culture. You do suggest that for the empowered political elite of Mexico, another functional value in all of this is that it gets people out of the country who, if they lingered in the misery that they've enjoyed in that country, would turn against the government and not, uh, as they try to go towards democratic forms, uh, these people would not be supportive of the current ruling elite. Absolutely. And then you add to it an ideology that is when a country or society, almost like the Arab Middle East, cannot provide goods and services because of autocracy or corruption or statism or any of these systems that we know do not work and they have a two to three percent population growth and their GNP cannot service that growth, well, how, do you, how do you solve that problem? Well, you create a national mood of envy, of jealousy. You blame El Norte, the Americans, the gringos, the Mexican war, and it creates this envy. It's very unhealthy because the reality is that most people risk their lives in the concrete to flee to a country mm -hmm while their elites, both in Mexico City and our own citizens, uh, sort of deprecate the system. But everybody from Oaxaca or Chiapas that you talk to admits that they do not want to go to Argentina, they do not want to go to Guatemala, they do not want to go to any Latin country south of Mexico. But do they also admit that they don't really want to become Americans? Well, they have a different view of America. They like American capitalism, they like American economic prosperity, they like American health care, they like American law, they like American know-how, they like the American system of um, hard work and fairness. And uh, uh, People will tell you that if they're in Mitsitso in, in California, they're treated much better by so-called gringos than they are by Mexicans in Mexico. Everybody knows that. It's not even open for discussion. That being said, if the host, us, allows people not fully to assimilate, but to live in apartheid communities as 
we have where I live, Parlier, Orange Cove, Mendota, Huron, 100% of, of Mexican immigrant communities, and does not allow the, uh, does not encourage them to speak English. Then of course, human nature being what it is, they'll prefer to retain not just their food or heritage or dance, but their core values. The um, we're, we're overdue for some commercials once again. Um, these days, it's rather um, uh, rather common though I think it's appropriate, to um, do some demographic projection and then to ask what the demographic changes will mean in terms of cultural changes and political process and to focus on a target year. The current available target year is the year 2050. We're 47 years away from there, and that's right in the middle of the century that we've just entered. Uh, after these commercials, I'd love to hear what you've got to say about what things will look like in 2050 if there is no um, intervening process which alters of the current path, which sets us on another path and doesn't and uh, does not um, and, and does in fact effectively alter the way in which we are going. To say that more simply, because I'm confounding myself, if we don't introduce some attempt to change this process, what will we look like, both in California and in all of this country, uh, in the year 2050? Right back to Victor Davis Hanson, as we continue to draw from his very important new book, Mexifornia: A State of Becoming. After these words. And we return to Victor Davis Hanson, who um, uh, I will at the moment pause to reintroduce, uh, is the author of the book that we're drawing from tonight, Mexifornia, A State of Becoming. He is a very distinguished American academic, professor of classics at California State University at Fresno. Much of his work, though not all of it, has been focused in the last uh, 10 years or so upon military history and more recently upon America's military undertakings. Uh, he was one of the uh, major voices from the academy, and there were very few from the academy, in favor of the intervention in Iraq, and he remains uh, a strong, um, uh, strongly committed to that position and has done some very brilliant writing upon the problems we face there now and what's the way to handle those problems. We may get to some of that before we finish tonight, and as I try to draw some connection between um, the focus on California and the focus on the rest of the seething world. But back to California and to uh, the United States, as it might look by the year 2050 if something doesn't intervene to alter the processes that are currently uh, moving and moving fast. What do you see? Well, I should preface it by I think most people in California really do believe in a multiracial state and don't really care what the racial component is. As someone whose family is interracial, I really don't think most of us care if we're all brown. Uh, that's but they, but they want an Americanized ra uh, exactly. multiracial state. It's a question of culture and simply is California going to follow the protocols of the Constitution and have a American Western lifestyle and culture which privileges the rule of law, which is a consensual society that has a viable middle class, open markets, private property, or is it going to emulate what's going on in Mexico? And the only the answer to that is that when people come from Mexico, they have to realize that they have rejected one culture, voted with their feet to embrace another culture, which they, no one else, they decided offers more opportunity for them and their children. So it's incumbent upon us, the host, to transmit what those values are, concretely and abstractly, and then create this new immigrant culture, which will be the same as it always has been in America. But 
the problem with that is that when people come illegally and when they come in such vast numbers and when the host despairs either out of cynical manipulation of people's labor wants cheap labor or because cynical manipulation of future voters or constituents or because of the clamor from uh, leftists in the universities who exactly. insist that this must be maintained as a separate culture uh, with its own full privileges and though maybe you don't give them a country of their own you recognize that they've got a right to essentially be with us and yet apart from us yes i say that but i do say cynical because the people that you're referring to whom i have to be with every day at the university me too at the university of chicago yeah believe me they do not live in c communities where i live they live in the most elite neighborhoods of north fresno they drive lexuses they have bmws sure their children go to the, the most elite schools they go to europe they do not want to participate in a daily basis with the very constituents whose policies yeah. uh, they have enacted and which have have made it so difficult so it's almost this is the way that i want to live but for you people you have to live this way and i have to make a living and prosper at it by almost ruining any chance yeah. that you had and uh, note i've heard colleagues at the university of chicago where we uh, there are mexicans uh, in large number in chicago but there are also of course many underclass blacks uh, and uh, our university as you know is really located uh, in a sector of the city where that's the uh, surrounding culture so to speak and i've heard some academics argue that what we need to revitalize the chicago schools is uh, a more black oriented curriculum looking to african values and to african language uh which of the uh, 133 african languages would be chosen i'm not sure uh and in general uh find yet other multiracial excuses multicultural excuses to avoid doing the job of education which might save the kids in the ghetto yeah, that reminds me of that Greek word prophosis. That's the pretext. But the, the students that I have that come and hunt us out in classics of all different, mostly minority backgrounds, want to speak and master English. They want to take Latin and of Greek. Course. They want, and they know that that's the way to succeed, and they tune these other people who prey on people. Actually, it's worse than that, prey on the misery of people, perpetual misery for their own uh, status as representatives of group rather than individual constituents do you, do you see tragic. any other do you see any other groups in this country apart from the large mexican uh, immigration and uh, they are clearly of mixed orientation some uh, would be violently opposed to what you're saying tonight many i'm sure would agree do you see any other group nationally or ethnically defined which is essentially following the, that same path well no and, and one of the things that we don't talk about is that in california there's increasing friction between the african-american community and the immigrant community for a variety of mm -hmm. reasons one is that a lot of these entry-level jobs are now requiring bilingual skills which african-americans don't have two uh, we're starting to see a little bit more of mr bustamante he said a terrible thing in front of uh, a group of union workers not long ago where he used the n-word and was really nonchalant in his apology and people in the african American community i think rightly so felt that he would have only said that had it been a casual uh, word in his vocabulary and then the, the other third rail we don't talk about is what exactly is the stance of race in mexico and we have this paradigm that white people or european people are racist toward darker peoples but in fact is racism more endemic in mexico and if it is do people who come across the border have n not to learn racism for us but to shed racism they bring with them and as someone who lives day by day with a lot of immigrants 
from Mexico. I've heard the N-word a lot in the last two or three mm -hmm. years, but I've heard it about ten times more from people who are Mexican immigrants than I have uh, people in the United States. When you say, as you do someplace in the book, that uh, in the future we, you may have not only a Mexifornia, but perhaps even a Massachusetts, what do you mean? I mean that there's a going. There may be people who would advocate a hybrid culture that would neither be Mexican or American, but would be something in between, and that would mean that they really don't believe in the singularity or the exceptionalism of the American Constitution and the American experience. They feel that's pathological, and that there are other indigenous uh, ways of organizing culture or politics. You know, there's there's a word we haven't yet used. But you're a veteran academic. I'm an even more veteran academic than you are. Um, and uh, let me just use the word directly. It's Marxist and Marxism. Uh, it is my observation. I think you will probably agree from what I've read of your work that the last great stronghold of um, ideological and theoretical Marxism uh, attempting to translate itself into practicalities, the last stronghold in all the world is the American university. It is, because it's the only system where a person can be hired right out of undergraduate graduate school right into a university and given tenure summers off thirty weeks a year and literally live their entire life from the age of eighteen without ever having to own a business be subject to the laws of supply and demand of uh, unemployment and so it, it's it creates this fantasy world of utopian uh, aspirations and a lot of very well-heeled suburbanites. Yes, but then that leads me to ask, what is the connection between academically based Marxism in the country right now and the problems that we've been discussing? Well, it's it's tragic again because the people who concocted these crazy ideas like bilingualism or um, mechistist thought or any of these ideas never really had to live with the consequences because of their affluence and their lifestyles in the university. The people who had to live with it, just as this was a case in Russia, were people where I live that were coming up from Mexico and having to put their kids in classes where, although they were illiterate and their parents never went through the ninth grade and the children didn't grow up reading Spanish, they were learning how to write and read Spanish uh, that they didn't know how to do before. I can remember when people were talking, well, we have some people coming up from Mexico, we can't just send notices to the parents in Spanish because we've discovered they're illiterate, so maybe we should send cassettes. That was a brilliant idea if you live in Palo Alto or the Berkeley Hills, but not if you're living where we are, yeah. because it put people at four or five years behind uh, Korean immigrants, Punjabi immigrants, Malaysian immigrants, all of whose communities said master English, master knowledge of American history, master the brutal laws of capitalism, succeed, uh, prefer business and private life to government. And the result of all that was that uh, uh, those groups uh, have had startling differences in graduation rates than the Mexican-American experience. We have four out of every ten students in American in California high schools of all statuses Mexican American Mexican illegal immigrant green card holders four out of ten are not graduating from high school seven percent of all Latinos have a bachelor's degree and sixty three percent of all Latino students of any status legal or not at where I teach cannot take a regular college course until they finish remedial education in their first year of college so this is an, a state and a national catastrophe and tragedy and it's its result not of uh, racism or not of in uh, indigenous inability to learn it's simply because we have done almost everything uh, designed for people to fail how much 
demand is there from the academic left or from the leaders of La Raza and so on for altered standards. The SAT uh, should not be used. Uh, it's biased towards uh, whites, et cetera, et cetera. There has to be because we all know that the basics of education, reading, knowledge, language, philosophy, mathematics are not in those curricula. So we know people will fail. If people fail, the spotlight will be turned on those groups. So they have create a perpetual cycle of saying, let's change the standards. We see it in the teacher education programs where after going through this therapeutic credential program, people then fail miserably at very high rates on our C-Best uh, exam, exams, yeah. which allows people to teach school in California. Now we always question the legitimacy of these tests and, and charge that they're culturally biased. I think this is really quite parallel to uh, the general cop-out uh, that uh, is claimed uh, by many leaders of um, the, of, um, the African-American community. Uh, special treatment, different standards, uh, because we are a different culture, we don't buy your values. I think there's a real model in a way. Of course, many first-rate and very important black leaders take exactly the opposite point of view, including one very significant, many significant people, but one particularly in California. Yes, uh, Ward Connerly. Ward Connerly, and he's demonized quite unfairly, but he's an he's a true symbol of what the civil rights movement was all about. Yeah. Uh, I want to come to solution, the, <laughs> but we've got some commercials to take care of first. Uh, and we'll pause for those in a minute, but I'll remind you, I think it was Tolstoy who originally wrote um, the article, or was it a pamphlet, which uh, was titled, What is to be done? Lenin then picked that up, of course, and obviously your book is pointed towards uh, remediation or significant change and alteration of the whole course uh, to which history has led us to this moment. You've got, you've got four particular points, four particular suggestions or recommendations. Uh, though they're not all equally favored by you. Uh, let's turn to that right after we take care of this. We are talking tonight with Victor Davis Hanson, who joins us from Fresno, California, where he is professor of classics at California State University. His most recent book, Mexifornia, A State of Becoming, is the text upon which we are doing explication tonight. And Victor, let's come then to it. What um, can we do about this? Let me start what I think what we should do, and I could exp perhaps just very briefly entail some of the alternatives that I think would not be wise. Um, I think we need to go back to what worked. The answer is pretty easy for us because we have a solution that in the 60s and 70s up till about 1970 worked pretty well, and that was threefold. It was legal immigration. It was measured immigration, perhaps 200,000 per year. And it was a confidence in assimilation so that we turned out a wonderful generation of Californians of Mexican heritage who are now Mexican-Americans, most of whom don't speak Spanish. They feel entirely assimilated. Their children are, are uh, sharing the same immigrant experience as a second, third generation Italian. That's the goal. What we should, I think what's more likely to happen if we don't take some pretty tough action is that we'll either allow people just simply to come across the border. That might work if we had confidence in English-only assimilation, the powers of popular culture, uh, everything from the v Williams sisters to Jennifer Lopez to, you know, Tiger Woods, a multiracial popular culture. That helps a little bit. But I still think that would be very difficult. Or we can simply curtail immigration but still allow this separatist ideology to exist. But I think the much wiser thing would be to work on all fronts, assimilation, integration, 
intermarriage, uh, chauvinism about American culture, restricted immigration, legal immigration. And the, we didn't have to have a, after all, we never would even conceive of militarizing the borders in the 1940s or 30s or 50s, simply because people who came from Mexico realized that they could not work here illegally. Employers realized they could not work here illegally. Uh, the D Department of Motor Vehicles would not issue a license to somebody who did not have a birth certificate. An employer would, I mean, a person who owned a suburban house would not hire somebody who they knew, whom they knew were illegally here to mow their lawn. So there's been, we have to change the culture. And, and I think the answer to it, really, to sum it all up, is it's not a legal or social or an economic, it's a moral issue. There's something abjectly amoral about just saying to yourself, tossing that bone and saying, well, they're better off getting money here in the United States than they were in Mexico. Uh, the employer says it, the Mexican government says it, the immigrant says it. When we know that we're all trafficking in human capital and that it's not working as it has in the past. One problem, though, between uh, uh, the present situation and doing uh, just the sort of thing you're talking about is that some political courage is required and uh, a willingness to be innovative and run some risks, the risk particularly of not being returned to office next time around. Absolutely, especially when you think of the strange and almost surrealistic or even Orwellian political alliance that we deal with in California. We have, believe it or not, the Wall Street Journal libertarian open borders right that represents meatpackers, agribusiness, construction uh, companies, and the therapeutic race industry in the university who both mm -hmm. conspire to denigrate anybody who wants to legitimately discuss the issue. How, think of, the, just for a second, Mill, the candidates that we have now to show you how distorted the uh, national yeah, conversation what, what has Arnold said on all of this? Well, here we have a guy who actually came as the American dream. I mean, the guy came penniless, Schwarzenegger yeah. did, without any money. And he had the worst thing you could possibly want in America in the 1950s. He had a heavy Germanic accent, which had been caricatured in every World War II movie as a Nazi. So he didn't have a lot going for him. He made himself wealthy and prosperous through hard work in the private sector. And he's being demonized as somebody who's anti-immigrant because he supported 187, which cut off uh, state aid to illegal um, immigrants. And then we have somebody like Mr. Bustamante, who grew up in a pretty middle-class suburban life, third generation, really didn't speak Spanish, was a lifetime bureaucrat, didn't experience a lot of racism, and was pretty much in a large minority culture, unlike Austrians with German accents. And he's now portraying himself as the American success story who pulled himself up by the bootstraps as if he just walked across the, the border from Mexico. So when you have that type of distortion, then it's really, I'm pretty pessimistic about uh, what's what politicians are going to be able to do with the issue. You get into something else in the book which we haven't yet mentioned. Uh, and uh, I want to come to it in just a moment. After I first pause to invite listeners to uh, join us now in the conversation. We're opening the phone lines. The number, of course, as ever, is 591-7200, If you're calling long distance, the area code is 312. If you're listening to us on the Internet at even a greater long distance and you want to get to us via email, you do that by uh, addressing us at extension 720, extension 720, one word, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. It's extension 720 at tribune.com or by phone 591 
We look forward to your contributions. We'll be on to the phones, I should, I do predict, in fact, in about 10 minutes. In this book, you get around to something which has uh, bothered many people of some education or perhaps even of some intrinsic sensibility, namely that American culture broadly has changed. Uh, it has gone uh, to a sort of squashing of cultural differences and the coming or the making of mass man, heavily addicted to, um, uh, to consumer capitalism and in general, in, as uh, snobbish sociologues sometimes see it, uh, it's a kind of undermining or dehumanizing of the prospect for civilized life as we uh, go towards, um, as we experience the baleful effects of cultural uh, downgrading. Aggression's law in which um, uh, poor culture, uh, mass entertainments of increasingly brutalized quality drive out just about anything else. Um, uniforms of unattractive clothing become absolutely a necessary badge for getting along and being young or even being middle-aged and out on the streets. In general, um, a kind of, um, well, as uh, a colleague of mine put it, the closing of the American mind and the substitution of something else. Strangely, though I'm sure that bothers you if you see such processes in action, you also say that this may be the way out or it may be uh, a way of limiting the cultural separatism of these unassimilated uh, hordes of young Mexicans, uh, Mexican, young Mexican-Americans, in that they will be drawn away from their own culture, the one that La Raza wants them to go on elaborating and enjoying, and drawn into this rather unattractive dehumanizing culture, which is becoming the way of life of America. Do I read you correctly? I do, and I've been, I've been severely criticized by some conservatives because as a student of Plato, and as you know, Straussians made that argument that there has to be sort of a natural elite that has a responsibility put on them by society mm -hmm. to uplift other people with not the, who have not had the same opportunities. That being said, whether you like it or not, and most of us don't, but nevertheless, uh, cell phones... Uh, T-shirts, rap music, Walmart, mass consumption, leisure, Oprah, all of these are, as Aristophanes or Plato would say, are democracy in the raw. Mm -hmm. And there's an inclusive quality about it, that it tends to uh, stamp out individual differences. It makes people homogenous. Uh, you can walk in Walmart in my hometown and be an illegal alien who doesn't speak English and buy a jogging suit. $15. So you're suggesting that La Raza, in a way, will peter out uh, and, be, and in substitution, uh, will have mass American uh, downgraded culture. I, uh, I'll just, all I can say in that regard is I would just relate what the La Raza people say. They're very worried about the debased Ab culture. About of, that happening to their popular, kids. Exactly. Oh, I and, see. and whatever you want to say about it, it's democracy. And it's a popular culture that has no prerequisites for participation. So if you can, as I said, if you can buy a jogging suit at Walmart for $15 and look exactly like somebody on Wall mm -hmm. Street that paid 500 for it, uh, there's some equality there. Of, maybe it's a base appetite, but nevertheless, the net result of it, as I see it in my hometown, are people with T-shirts, baseball caps, cell phones, and gradually, if we would just uh, try to stop the illegal immigration and, and sort of curtail the actual numbers, a process of natural uh, osmosis assimilation through popular culture would be a good starting point. Victor, I'm going to ask you now to, to make a tremendous leap, a leap of sheer intelligence. Um, 
you've done so much work and so much wonderful writing in recent years on America's international situation, the necessary use of military force, uh, and uh, the way in which we are presently using it, and what we do with our uh, difficult and, uh, tasks as they confront us in the Middle East and in Iraq. How do you connect all of that to what we've been talking about tonight? Well, in the abstract sense, if, if you just imagine this, who are our enemies? We've had the worst attack in the history of American life. I mean, the precursor for all of our wars, whether it was Lexington, Concord, Fort Sumner, burning of the White House in 1812, uh, Havana Bay, Lusitania, all of those did not rival 9-11. So if you, and 9-11 was a product of stealthy people inside the United States, some of whom were here illegally. That being said, we all know that nobody can defeat the military, conventional military of the United States. We've seen it in action in Afghanistan and Iraq. The only way we can destroy America is through the process that we saw in 9-11. Create or blow up a grid, uh, have a sniper where I lived in Annapolis for a year, shut down commerce after 9 o'clock by just fear. Mm -hmm. Terrorism, in other words. And if you have a 2,000-mile border and you're somebody who wants to, that's porous, well, then it's the obvious solution is simply to go into a country like Mexico that has hardly any ability to police its own borders and walk across into the United States disguised as an illegal alien. I mean, it doesn't take much intelligence to do that. And if we're talking about it now, I'm sure that people who mean us a lot of harm uh, are thinking along the same line. So how can you be having these rigorous protocols at our airports or at our ports or our, our highways that enter and then just allow a completely open border because of sensitivity with the Mexican government? It makes no sense. We are going to pause right now for a quick round of commercials and then directly to the phones uh, and, for that matter, to the email. Uh, if you're trying to reach us on the phone at the moment, you're not getting through. All the lines are taken. And the best strategy, of course, is to call again as soon as we say goodnight to some prior caller. The email has a virtually infinite capacity, whatever that means. And uh, you can get to us on email if you address us at extension720 at tribune.com. We return directly to Victor Davis Hanson, continuing to analyze the uh, observations and the thesis put forward in his new book, Mexifornia, A State of Becoming. That is, by the way, published by Encounter Books. If you want to get your hands on it quickly, the easy way to do that is to go to our website. Uh, that is WGNRadio.com. Uh, scroll down by clicking on my name. Scroll down to um, our sub-site, so to speak, for this program. And then go to uh, one of the alternatives you have before you, namely our program guide. And then if you go to this very date, September 4, you'll see a picture of the cover of this book. If you click on that, you are in the hands of Barnes & Noble, who will sell the book to you uh, at a significant discount. Our phone number, again, 591-7200. We return directly to your calls and other uh, email contributions after these words. And we go to the phones now for your calls, uh, whether in the form of questions or, for that matter, statements or impressions, uh, to Victor Davis Hanson. Victor Hanson is Professor of Classics at California State University at Fresno. He's also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. He was last year uh, on leave at uh, the Naval Academy at Annapolis. He's a regular contributor to the National Review Online. He's the author of a number of important books. Indeed, he's also um, the uh, historian who has elaborated a view that there is a special Western way of war, which has a great deal to do with the success 
but may also have something to do with the coming problems of Western civilization. And his new book, Mexifornia, A State of Becoming, from which we're drawing tonight, is published by Encounter Books. And with that, to the calls, and here is the first one. Hello, you're on the air. Hello, Milt. Uh, I just, uh, being a, a uh, legal green card holder in this country, I wanted to express my view to your panelists, who I think is fundamentally wrong in his belief that assimilation requires the complete abandonment of one's culture. Um, you know, I, I do agree that as an immigrant here, there are certain things you must take upon yourself uh, to live here, i.e. learn uh, English as best as you can, but uh, to ask someone to uh, abandon their culture, I think, is a completely absurd idea, and I don't recall any Europeans adopting the Native American culture uh, when they came to this land. Well, uh, Victor, would you say that you ask people to fully abandon their culture of origin? No, I think that the word complete abandonment is the caller's, not mine. I said that our own life was enriched by fashion, food, literature, all of these cultural things that are around the peripheral. But if somebody comes from Mexico, obviously they would not want to replicate the practice of the Mexican police, the Mexican voting system, the Mexican economy, the Mexican oil industry, the Mexican uh, university system. All of that would have to... That's why the, the, your caller is here and not in Mexico. Yeah. So we're not talking about a personal culture, a family culture. But uh, that being said, as someone who's from a Swedish-American family, I don't really care much anymore to buy Volvos or electric Electrolux uh, vacuum cleaners or eat rye crackers or wear cow horns on uh, my head. I mean, that is something my grandparents did, and I don't have any desire to be chauvinistic about it, although I have a lot of respect for Sweden. But these... Um cultures of origin do tend to vitiate and disappear across generations. Whether the caller likes it or not, the chances are, given the American dynamo of popular culture, his grandchildren will know nothing about Mexico, but uh, a lot about America. I, uh, reading your book, I could not help but think of my own childhood uh, and my own parents. Our, ours are different situations. You are, you've been here, you say your family's been on that farm for some five or six generations. My mother's side has, yes. Yeah. Um, my parents, as I said earlier, were immigrants you know, from the Pale, uh, Jewish immigrants from, um, uh, from Eastern Europe. They were very eager to become American. My mother, when she arrived, I understand, um, knew no English whatsoever. She had Polish, Russian, Yiddish, and some French, but no English. Uh, my cousin, an older cousin who knew her, when, she first, when my mother first arrived, said that she learned English within a year. And, of course, she became quite fluent. They had strong aspirations, my, both my parents, to become citizens, which they did as soon as they could. And of course they had great aspirations for their children. Um, though they didn't urge us to abandon um, the culture of origin. There were aspects of it which were very present in our home. Though we were not a particularly religious family, we were still a very Judaic family. Mm -hmm. uh, and I still have the language. I mean. Uh, Though my son doesn't have it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what just I was a, talking about. That's yeah. just the way American, the brutality of assimilation works, whether we like it or not. My point is that everything you say is, of course, exactly right. I would say one thing about this question of European or whatever the caller meant by that. Whether he likes it or not, the language he called in and does business with as a European mm -hmm. is, is from Europe. And whether but Spanish is as well, but nevertheless, it's an English language. The, the system of law, economy politics, culture is Western, and it's very, he should understand it's not racial. It explains why South Korea is a very different place than North Korea, 
or that East Germany and West Germany were different, or why uh, we have these vast divides between Tijuana and San Diego. It's not a question of race or genes or any of these crazy concepts. It's a question of whatever race that is, do they want to emulate the core values of Western civilization? If they do, they usually can provide goods and services to their citizens at a, at a better level than other paradigms. You are, of course, an historian of classical antiquity, and particularly I know you've done um, very important work on the Greeks. Um, do we find any parallels there? I think of the helots of Sparta. Does that make any sense? Well, we do. But they were treated very differently. They were. There's a problem, and that is that Western societies that tend to create goods and services, whether it's Athens and the Medics or Sparta, whatever the society is, immigration throughout history, whether it's Rome or coming across the Danube or Rome or across Numidia into the Mediterranean area, it's a fact that people migrate from non-Western countries to Western countries. They do it in Europe today. They do it uh, in North Korea. They're dying to come into South Korea. Again, not a question of race. And they vote with their feet. And Westerners, whether they're evil or good, they go out to the non-West to exploit, conquer, colonize, whatever term you do it. But they don't really, Americans don't really move in, in mass to participate in Mexican culture. Uh, Canadians who live in a very inhos inhospitable climate are not dying to get into America to the same degree as Mexicans. No, they like to go to Hollywood, Florida. They do, but the point is that Canada emulates the United States, or the United States emulates Canada to a greater degree than Mexico does, because it further it it more shares this common core uh, protocols, and that's well, what's so well, that's what, what get all the emotion. What is the common core? Um, it's pretty simple. It really is. It's a separation between church and state. It's a secular uh, secular culture. It's a belief in rationalism that reason can explain natural phenomena, not faith or superstition. It's a tolerance for difference of viewpoints, religious, racial, sexual. It's a creation or embodiment of self-critique. The society always evolves and questions its assumptions. It's a chauvinism of a middle class. It's not a pyramidal society like Mexico. It's a consensual government where there's a legislature, an executive branch, an independent judiciary, uh, civic militarism where the government officials don't walk around with uniforms on as they do in many South American countries or in North Korea. So all of those, all of those protocols haven't always been with us, but their ingredients or their embryos were in Greece, and they sometimes are rejected, modified, adapted over 2,500 years, but they don't go away in the West. And now they're spreading beyond the West, and they prove Isocrates' point that you didn't have to be Greek to be Greek you could be of any race. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be uh, an, um, a European to be an American. Wonderfully said. Shakespeare doesn't belong to Europeans. It can be a kid from Mexico can be a better Shakespearean scholar if he chooses to adopt Western culture than the fifth generation suburbanite. Let's go back to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero. You are on the air. Good evening. Thank you very much. Um, given I and I, I I hope I'm correct in my my I guess my premise. Um, it seems that Cuban Americans, uh, especially down in Florida, uh, who have kept their culture but learned English, uh, become naturalized citizens, um, in a lot of ways, uh, 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 assimilate into our culture yet keep their own, uh, vote almost exclusively Republican, it seems. Uh, yes. Now, uh, there's a couple things I'd point out about the Cuban Im immigration. Okay. One, it came in 
really one or two large uh, large mm -hmm. influx, and then it was stopped. Okay. So the powers of assimilation work. Second, the people who Castro demonized and drove out were mostly middle and upper class capitalists, of mm -hmm. course. So they did come with the entrepreneurial skills rather than being peasants, mm -hmm. which happens a lot in Mexico. Okay. That was important. And there is a sea today that separates uh, Cuba. All that being said, don't underestimate that one of the worries of the Cuban-American community, if you talk to Cuban-Americans, is simply that the third generation uh, are not learning Spanish. And although they keep talking about Miami as a South American city, and it may be, it's, it's also has a problem with teaching Spanish to people who've been here three generations. Mm -hmm. um, I guess what my question was leading to is, and I think you've kind of answered it, is what do you see happening in 2050, California? Would there be... A similar thing, and I think you kind of answered that. There doesn't seem to be that entrepreneurial spirit. I, I'm ha I mean, I'm, some days I'm depressed, but some days I'm hopeful that I think the state if, will look different, but I have a feeling that, you see, there's one thing that is a saving grace. If California were to adopt the protocols of Mexico, then the people who were in California wouldn't stay because they don't stay in Mexico. They would want to go to Oregon. I had a friend uh, who's Mexican tell me if... California becomes like Mexico in its culture, they would go to Oregon. If they go to Oregon becomes, they'll go to Washington. Now, that sounds a very brutal, racist thought, but he's a Mexican himself. And what he simply meant was that he didn't want gasoline to ruin his engine as it did in Mexico. He wanted water that didn't make him sick. And those very basic facts were a product of a very sophisticated culture that has things like disinterested research in the university, freedom of speech, academic freedom, uh, voting. Uh, consensual government, uh, religious tolerance, uh, self-critique, all of that translates from the abstract to the concrete of, of not getting sick when you drink water in a rural Mexican village. Mm. And he doesn't want that to happen. So he wouldn't obviously want to import that whole protocol to Central California. Sarah, thank you for the call. Thank you. And let me read um, to you, Victor, a comment that comes via email. Although I ordinarily sit on the social left, Illegal immigration is my hot-button issue. I wholly support your guests' efforts to raise public awareness in this area. And I agree with most of the analysis presented so far. However, whatever misgivings you might have about Marx, it strikes me that the La Raza mentality might have more in common with the Wahhabi than it does with Marx. In fact, since the primary reason that the feds turn a blind eye to the problem is to expedite the exploitation of cheap labor, I would think that Marx would strenuously object to open borders. You know, there's something to that. And what I meant by that is maybe the abstract literature that you read is quasi or dumbed down Marx, but the actual practice of Mecha and La Raza has a lot to do with the Wahhabism because it's the rule of the tribe, the rule of the, the Aryan, the rule of the purist based on racial terms. And as you know, Marx felt that class revolution would trump uh, tribal differences. It was an overall ideology. So there's something yeah. that's incompatible with Marxism in its purest form and a racial uh, superiority separatist that Le Mecha and La Raza promulgate. But there are some things in their rhetoric that sound uh, rather familiar to somebody who's been traumatized by uh, Marxists, whether Absolutely. academic or otherwise. Yes. I have here before me, I pulled this off the internet uh, earlier today, uh, a statement from the Barrio Defense Committee of San Jose, Caliph Azatlan. <laughs> and I read from it, whereas La Raza, within the borders of the U.S., uh, have faced
the most brutal attacks by the U.S. government and the white settler population since the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, La Raza have been faced with extreme exploitation and poverty, which forces La Raza to live uh, surviving in the poorest sections of cities and rural towns, and constantly faced with gentrification. La Raza are forced to live in barrios infested with U.S. drug importation, um, followed with the police military forces that are at war with La Raza, everyday La Raza are killed, and so on. I go down to this. Mexican and indigenous children suffer at the hands of school officials, administrators, and teachers who impose European history and European disciplinary values, causing self-hatred and self-killings within our children. Well, that's a sort of American left theme, isn't it? Yeah, um, you almost want to you want to add running dog capitalists and have the whole picture right. there. Yeah, I, I, it's not even. I mean, it's so deductive and infantile that I think we've gone beyond that. That's 1960s half-educated rhetoric. I was, I was about to say that's what I heard on the barricades uh, in 1968-69 uh, yeah, at the me. universities. Yeah, it's puerile, and the people who mouth that are not educated. half-educated, half sort of proving Socrates' dictum. There's nothing more dangerous than a half-educated mm. person. We uh, pause once again, Victor. We'll be directly back after Thank these you. words. And back to Victor Davis Hansen professor of classics at California State University in Fresno, and Victor Hansen is talking to us from Fresno tonight. Are you at the radio station of your university? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm at KMJ Studios, uh, Infinity Broadcast Network, uh, good. and I did a, a station here with the local host, Bill Manders, which I do sometimes. Good. Well, let's give them uh, credit and thanks for their assistance tonight. And let me read you... Um, a portion of an email that I've got in front of me. I enjoyed your show this evening. I've been in education for over 25 years. I worked as a high school Spanish teacher, a bilingual teacher, and a bilingual school psychologist. The past 14 years have been spent in school, in a school district that was 75% Hispanic. Our graduation rate was between 30 and 50% during this period. The district was strongly committed to bilingual education, paren, monolingual Spanish education. Close paren. A student could enter the high school out of Mexico and spend the next four years working in Spanish. This closed the door to college and limited his ability to find a good-paying job. It would be interesting to compute the cost per graduating student. It would not support continued funding of bilingual education. No, I think the caller is absolutely right, and I think even people who support bilingual education have given up the argument that it improves the reading scores. They they make the argument now for matters of cultural pride. They don't any longer uh, insist that it that it, that it uh, results in real education vis-a-vis -vis, uh, more or less an immersion program. That issue's been. Uh, as someone who taught for 20 years at Cal State in the foreign language and literature department, used to sort of cry the beloved state to see what went yeah. on when we had these big fights between the Chicano professors and the Spanish professors over the purity of the Spanish language and yet we weren't even talking about the English language that people that they didn't even accept that there was a normative Spanish grammar and Spanish language that they wanted to teach a particular slang of, of Spanish and then how that translated into English education was even more depressing. You are a most unusual academic uh, by at least by the standard measure, you are a working farmer. I gather you're working less on the farm than you used to. I have. The last two years, I have a, actually a neighbor who is from the Punjab, a very close friend of mine, and mm -hmm. one of the th reasons that I wrote the book was that I, I had heard from him and other people, we forget another issue about illegal immigration, is there's literally thousands of people from the Philippines, Korea, 
in the Punjab who have come to California legally and want to bring people who are educated and want to work here and can support themselves and have to wait up to five years, if at all, to get in. And it's almost as if the state or the federal government, I should say, is punishing people who play by the rules and rewarding those who don't. You can't do an illegal uh, entry from Korea as easily as you can from, from Mexico. No, but a joke in California, of course, is if you want your relative to come in from Korea or Punjab, you fly them into Mexico City yep. and have them walk across. We go back to the phones. Here is another caller. Hello, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, I, I'm basically from the pro-labor left. I don't know what kind of Marxist you're talking about. The I think you're talking about, about uh, post-modernists, really when you talk about this identity politics sort of thing. But, um, you know, well, Victor sure. and I have agreed that we're talking about academic Marxists oh. who have considerable influence on what happens in the outer world. <laughs> that, may, that may be true. Um, but in any event, I, you know, there's, there's something with this Mexican immigration thing that, that's, that's being missed, I think. I work with day laborers a lot who are, you know, are being cheated out of their working time, their hours, and whole days of work and stuff like that. But, you know, but they don't come here. What we've found is that many people expect to go back. They want to make some money and then go back. And what they think, which you know, is an illusion, we realize. And but the thing is, is that the major influx of Mexicans into Illinois in the last ten years has been astounding. Now that's got to, you know, what what I what we told people when we were fighting the NAFTA fight, was that this will happen because of the fact that you're going to be dumping American produce into the Mexican uh, agricultural sector. You're going to be buying up the land. You're going to be industrializing the land, and you're going to be pushing people off the land. And when they get pushed off the land, they're going to come north. We told people that, but they didn't seem to get it. Now I think that the proof is, is obvious. I mean, the people who are coming here are rural mm-hmm. Mexicans. They have a rural accent. Yes, they do, um, and a lot of them, uh, I was in the bank the other day, and people, and I wrote about this in the book on an earlier occasion, the people who spoke Spanish could not understand the people in the bank. They spoke a mm-hmm. indigenous mestizo language, and nobody understood them. So you make a point. I just add that if you were a leftist, and I, I guess you are, there would be reasons to support restrictions on illegal immigration for two reasons. One, the Labor Department itself said that in California over the last decade, 30% of real wages were lost because of the employer's ability to hire people through cash wages to compete against a legal um, labor force that really couldn't organize when they're always faced with cheaper and more, in some ways, industrious workers who because they weren't legal, had no uh, really legal defenses against employers. And the second thing is, as someone who lives on a farm and has watched California's small farming being been destroyed, uh, one of the results of NAFTA in this global economy is that American capital went down to Mexico, created uh, vast corporate farms for any, everything from right. grapes to tomatoes, and then shipped it for export to the United States uh, using... Mexican legislation that allowed certain chemicals, labor practices, and economies that we couldn't compete with. So yeah. anybody who's on the left should not be for illegal immigration. Well, that, that part I, I agree with. But the, the, the other part is that when it comes to organizing in the United States, we found out, uh, I forgot the name of the case now, but anyway, this one, they, they found out this one guy was illegal, so he didn't get his back pay. They said he, wasn't, that he didn't deserve it. 
and which put a real damper on being able to organize into unions, which is basically what we want to do. We want to organize people into unions so that they have some democratic rights within the workplace. Yeah, I think what the best example for, that would prove your point is this myth about Cesar Chavez. What destroyed Cesar Chavez was not a bunch of corporate agriculture people with black mustaches and black hats necessarily. What happened was that when the first collapse in the Mexican economy occurred and employers were flooded with economic refugees, Chavez was confronted with a key decision. Do you support restricting immigration? And then you have the only game in town and unionization was working as a farmer who listens to farmers. They really were angry at Chavez because he was starting to get real progress in wage and benefits. Or do you simply say, you go the ethnic tribal route and say, these are my people, I'll unionize them. That's what he did. And what happened was by 1980, there were so many illegal wo workers who would work much harder because they were more desperate and, and they destroyed the union. Yeah, yeah, that's true to that. And but the you know but the the the, the point is is that is that this this was not something that you couldn't see coming. No, everybody and, saw it coming. You know, and, that's why I mentioned though that you 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 shouldn't say that it's an accidental phenomenon. There were people obviously on the right who wanted it, but you have to you have to also be critical of people on the left who saw the possibilities of unassimilated constituents that would require group rather than individual representation. Sir, we thank oh, you for the call. Okay, all right. Glad to have heard from you. At the moment, there are one or two lines available at last. If you've been trying to reach us, do certainly try again on 5917200. And you are next on the air. Good evening. Uh, being a Chicago police officer and being of Italian descent and having experienced the stigma of the mafioso, I don't see the same um, uh, principles applied to the Mexican gangbangers in the city of Chicago, many of whom are illegal immigrants. And there's a general order out in the city of Chicago that you are not to ask a Mexican immigrant if he's here legally or illegally, and that's been enforced for some time now. But either how, is the, how, how is that justified, sir? I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. We're just told not to ask if they're here legally or illegally. And our outgoing superintendent Hilliard even stated on Channel 11 on um, uh, on one on, on one of the shows said that he wishes that the government would go after the gangbangers in the city of Chicago with the same fervor as they did the mafioso in the 70s and the 80s and apply the RICO Act and, 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 these, and these other principles. But And the only people that suffer are the people in the Mexican community, the hardworking people. Wow. You had an, a perfect example, a nine-year-old girl, Ana Mateo, standing on her front porch, and a gangbanger of Mexican descent shot and killed her, and they still have not found you know, the, the offender. And if sure, they do I think, find the offender, this person will never be deported. No, you're absolutely right. And what we're seeing in California is the same type of laws and protocols. You can't ask somebody. But we also have this myth, and one of the, I'm not giving an example of what I mean, is if you use the word illegal alien because people are here from a different country, i.e. alien, and they're here illegally, you're demonized because the word is undocumented worker, but it assumes that everybody here is a worker. In fact, the vast majority may be, but if you have four, five, six, seven million people have come in the last ten years, even a small percentage, ten percent, five percent, would be very several hundred thousands of people who are not working. And we have enormous uh, one quarter of the California penal population are not Mexican, but illegal Mexicans who came here illegally and engaged in, in the type of activity you're talking about. We, do, we don't talk about that pathology because it is a minority, but the the group that you're working with is so large that that minority in real terms 
can be quite large. And when you see the workers come from Mexico, and some of them are very meek and mild-mannered, and they go to work for minimum wage, and if something happens to them on the job, if they should, God forbid, lose an eye or anything, I mean, the, 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 the employer is not going to do anything for them. And then no, this, this guy state. will be back in Mexico. So in, in reality, you have to put this at the feet of the politicians. No, you have the mayor of the city of Chicago who has the blacks bought and paid for in the city, and he's got the Hispanics bought and paid for, and he panders to the... To the to the yuppie community, the homosexual community, he's got everybody bought and paid for, and and nobody and nobody bucks Mayor Daly. Ultimately, ultimately though, everybody has the same aspirations because they're in America, and right. for all the rhetoric, they're not going to leave America because they no. realize. But the fun, ultimately, there's always in civilization a self-correcting process. It can be very brutal and can destroy civilizations. But finally, if people don't do what their ancestors did, civilization then falls apart and arose and people leave or they try to create it elsewhere. Sir, we thank you for the call. A very fine contribution. Uh, I can't resist asking you, Victor, as a classicist, you've undoubtedly done uh, philological labors as well. Yes. Uh, philologically speaking, how did we manage to put aside the term illegal alien and turn it into undocumented worker? It was very clever how it was done because uh, it did. It had the result of two things. First, it got away got away from the question of legality, and that's what the La Raza uh, activists really want to do because they want to talk about. As soon as you debate somebody, and I have, they will say, "Well, I'm a second, thir third generation. You want me back in Mexico?" When in fact their parents came here legally. Mm -hmm. So it gets rid of the it gets rid of the issue of it, it legality. And the second is. Um, if you use the word undocumented worker, then you suppose that every single person who comes across the border illegal of any age, you can come across five years, eight years, nine years, 90 years, you are a worker. When in fact, a lot of them aren't. They're aliens. They're people who are married to workers or people who are old or people who are too young to work. But all of this happens because politicians are yielding. Why are they yielding? Because... Is there that much voting power in the hands of um, people... Uh, Mexicans who will press this no sort that's of the linguistic change or what? one third of all the people who supported Proposition 187 were Mexican American. One of the phenomena is that Mexican Americans who were here illegally and assimilated, and there's millions of them, don't necessarily share these La Raza sympathies. In fact, a lot of them are opposed to it. But the people whose opinions you read in the op-ed columns, the people on radio, the people in the universities are much more influential than their numbers might suggest. And one of the ways that most people have a uh, sort of the attitude that would run something like this. I get up in the morning, I go teach. Do I really want to be called a racist that would require a lot of explanation? Do I really want to have a letter to the editor say that I was a racist? So it's sort of calling somebody a Jew in Germany about 1938. It just stops all discussion. Yeah. And everybody gets scared, and no one wants to speak. I've had so many people... I. I one of the strangest thing and one of the most aggravating, I have so many people who will write to me and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, but are you insane? Why would you do this? We don't need that type of uh, headache. It's not totally unlike um, calling people homophobes if they want to raise some questions about gay marriage. Yeah, absolutely. And and yet, the, as you pointed out, so I thought adroitly, when you read the Mecha and La Raza literature, by any standard classical definition of separatism, separatism and racism, that qualifies. No. Uh, we have a last round of commercials to take care of. We'll do that right now, and then directly back to Victor Davis Hanson. Uh, at the moment, one phone line is available, 591-7200. And, of course, 
The email is available, extension720 at tribune.com. And let me once again make one thing perfectly clear. The title of the book by Victor Davis Hanson, our guest tonight, the book that we have been drawing from in this conversation, is Mexifornia, A State of Becoming. It is published by Encounter Books, and it is readily available wherever they sell real books, including on our own uh, program guide. If you go to our website and scroll down to September 4, you can click on the picture you see of the cover of this book, and that will deliver you directly to Barnes & Noble, and uh, they will sell this book to you at uh, the usual discount. 5917200 is our number, and you are on the air. Good evening. Hi. Uh, I'm second-generation uh, Mexican-American, and I like your idea of measured measured immigration, and I'm concerned about our society. Uh, on the one hand, we've become almost a, a society too tolerant of intolerance, of people who are intolerant to us, and then at the other side, we don't want to breed a hostile environment, you know, because of our fears of immigration. So what can we do as individual Americans to either, um, you know, uh, as far as going to politicians, or what can we do just basically to, you know, help, um, you know, uh, solve this, this problem on I, I a think, more practic practical level? I think what I, I could just speak from personal experience. I try to tell people that it really does not have much to do with race or Mexico per se. It's just simple legality. Um, some of it, as I said before, California has been deeply enriched by the contribution of Mexican immigrants who are now citizens and some of the best uh, people in our society. But it's only because they were here legally and they assimilated and they were given the tools to succeed. Where What I find tragic and, as I said earlier, amoral is when you bring people up illegally and you pay them in cash and they have to live in the shadows of the government and then everybody says they're better off than they were in Mexico. Well, they are for a year or two or to three years, but not maybe at the age of 55 when they have no uh, retirement or medical benefits or their back is broken and their children grow up with a very different idea of America. And one of the funny, the proof of the pudding is what the employer says. So often employers will say, and I've heard them say this, if you bring somebody out to work, make sure he speaks Spanish and has no tattoos, no shaved heads. I want somebody from Oaxaca, a real Mexican. And what he's saying is, I have used up already somebody like that who's 60, who's been here, his children didn't learn English the way that other people did, and now he's in the criminal justice system, so I want to go bring somebody else in Oaxaca so I can do the same thing to him. And I think it's a, ultimately it has to be a moral question. Our government, you know, basically seems to turn a blind eye, and so I'm wondering, can we do anything politically, you know, to make our a point heard that, you know, this is really a, a, an issue, a problem. And it is. I, I what think can it, we do? I think if you look at the statistics, it's just staggering that 80% of Americans, through most polls, want to control immigration. Not end it, but make it legal. Mm -hmm. Most people, 70%, want to accept English as a national language. So In the 80s, it, Reagan granted amnesty, and I don't know uh, if that contributed to the well, problem. Well, you know, that's a good question, because we, I had a debate both left and right. I think most people in California would be for amnesty if it came with concessions. In other words, not a rolling amnesty. We've had two amnesties, and the Mexican government and the La Raza people want a con they want amnesty for 10 million, bring in 10 million, more amnesty. If we were to bring, give amnesty for the 9 to 11, if that's the figure, and then stop the border and let assimilation work, then I'd be for it. On the other hand, the right, who are purists, 
don't want any amnesty. And the problem I have with that is that I know people in my hometown who've been in the United States illegally for 40 years. Right, like my mom came here yeah. legally, and my cousin, though, who wanted to come here, she tried to three times to come here legally and was mm -hmm. not able to get through. Yeah, so I don't think that we're going to have vans go up and break into people's homes that have been here 30 <laughs> years and put them right. back in Oaxaca where they've never been. So I think the answer is that both sides could come together and someone could say, we will have amnesty and we'll be enriched by the 10 million undocumented or illegal, whatever term you choose to employ. But in exchange for that, this is not going to be a perpetual amnesty. We're going to close the borders, make it legal, and have sanctions that really count against employers who abuse the system. Does writing to our senators help or, you know, our I think it does. I think it's very important. Is there any organizations out there we There's can There's something that is demonized, but it's Mark Krikorian's Center for Immigration Study in Washington that does a very good job. And I, I found them to be very, very knowledgeable about the situation. Okay. I well, think if people you like your, Yeah, thank you. I think if people don't speak out, it's going to be an issue of demagoguery on the left and the right. Right. Yeah. Thank you, man, for the call. Thank you. Um, Victor, in the last few minutes we've got, indulge me, if you will, or I, at least I give myself permission to indulge myself and uh, turn um, a bit um, back to the ancient world, back to philosophical pursuits, back to historical analysis, uh, which is where you come from in terms of your training and your, your intellectual interests. Uh, I think you will agree with me that uh, an examination of the whole history of the human enterprise is that um, human society is radically imperfectible. You never get utopia. And Absolutely. And I think you'll probably agree with me also as I betray and violate my own profession, which is psychology, when I assert that um, that human behavior, if not character, and even character, is in fact quite mutable. It depends upon what social system maintains it. And when societies change, people change. Uh, that being so, if you agree that it is so, what uh, what is the long view of the current dilemma that we're that we're in right now as regards uh, illegal immigration and as regards these unassimilated uh, bodies of um, millions living within the country who might thereby tend to undo the social solidarity such as still remains as such as we still linger upon in this country. Yeah. Well, there's no reason historically why the United States would have to exist even a single additional generation. They only exist when each generation passes on the values to the next generation. And if you have people who no longer believe what it is to be an American or that it's better than the alternative, then it would cease to exist. A good example is Rome in the 5th century AD. By any standard measures, it was a much more um, much wealthier, most, much more populous empire than the Republic had been, say, in 216 B.C. After all, after, during the Punic Wars, in the space of 24 months, it lost 100,000 legionnaires dead, much more than Adrianople in the 5th century. Well, is that mass culture that we were talking about earlier, the mass culture of uh, the shopping malls yeah. and all that goes with it, very, is very, that, is very that also undermining us? It is. And the point that I was making in 500 AD, people no longer knew what it was to be an American, I mean, to be a Roman yeah. in the 2nd century BC, they did. So if people don't, if they think America is simply indulgence, uh, its affluence, its popular culture, its media, its cell phones, but it's not the harder work of uh, education, consensual government, um, individual freedom, capitalism, and they don't believe in that system, there's no reason it has to be. And I can see it eroding in California in very insidious ways. When I get property tax statements 
when I go to the DMV, I expect now there to be routine errors, clerical errors, because uh -huh. I know the people who are doing the clerical work are products of the California school system and therefore are really illiterate. And we're starting to see that in California in banking, in the school. When I have a student that wanted a transcript the other day, I just said to her, do not go in the, the administration building because the people who are working there are illiterate and your transcript will be in error. Fascinating. Horrifying, but fascinating. Yeah. I fear we're out of time. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been Thank an exceptionally you. valuable conversation. Our guest has been Victor Davis Hanson. The book that we've been drawing from is Mexifornia, A State of Becoming, published by Encounter Books. Some quick words about programs to come. Tomorrow night there's a ball game. We will be on after the game probably and most likely by tape unless it ends early then we might be on live. On Monday night uh, we talk with Brian Robertson who is the author of the new book Daycare Deception. I believe that's also uh, published by Encounter Books as a matter of fact. And other things to come uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday. Wednesday we're talking with Walter Anderson of Parade Magazine. Thursday, a special commemorative and analytic program focused on the second anniversary of the September 11th disaster. That's what's to come for now. Thanks to all for listening, and a cordial good night.